Demystifying Game Development, Designing Samus Spaceship, The Thrush Eterna, Collaborative Creativity, Retro Studios Cancelled Games, and Whatever Happened to Crade. I'm the Well-Read Mage, and this is MageCast. So on this episode, we're taking a peek under the HUD to speak with art and creative director James H. Darji. You may remember him from our Final Fantasy The Spirits Within episode. James has been a part of some seriously heavyweight franchises, playing a role in visually constructing the worlds of The Matrix, Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, and many more, as well as our subject this time, Metroid Prime. Seriously though, you should peruse his website, claviusbase.com, to get a glimpse of what did and also did not make it into these productions. You'll find that we not only secure some fascinating behind-the-scenes information on this episode, but we also discuss some rather valuable bits of wisdom that may prove useful in navigating the line between our professional and personal lives. MageCast is the podcast for conversationalists in a world where we've already stopped listening to each other. To learn more, visit thepixels.com, that's the-pixels.com, and patreon.com forward slash thepixels. Or join me on Twitter at the Well-Read Mage, or live streaming at twitch.tv forward slash the Well-Read Mage. All right, welcome to MageCast. Uh, we are back for another episode, and it seemed like it was ages ago when I last spoke with my guest that I have here with me today. Um, cause this was way back in last October of last year. Um, but I have Mr. James H. Darji, art and creative director back with me again after our final fantasy spirits within discussion. Oh my uh, God. So, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, we just missed a 20 year anniversary of that. It oh really? Just, yeah. It just happened like a couple months back. So it was between the episode that you and I did yep. and today. Oh yep. wow. 20 years. 20 years. Hello. Well, thank you for having me, Moses. It's it's a pleasure. Pleasure oh, to yeah, chat with you anytime. Mine. Yeah, and we've been chatting it up about movies and cats and bushes and all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, I found a cat today. since we last spoke and it, it, he he might pop up and make a, an appearance, you know. Ah, a surprise guest on mm-hmm. this podcast. Um, but yeah, it's great to have you back. It's great to talk about uh, another element of your creative past, a uh, fairly iconic one, which we'll get to. Um, but I wonder if you would be so kind as to give just a little bit on who you are and what you do and uh, maybe what you're currently working on. Oh, sure. Well, uh, what do I do? It's so it's so varied. Um, it's hard to say, but being an art director, sometimes art and creative director, I tend to think they kind of merge most of the time. It's helpful anyway. You come up with lore and ideas of what you're making if they don't exist before you make them, you know, for visual components. So, you know, little, little writing, little concepting, modeling, texturing. And of course, from an art direction point of view, trying to tie the whole package together. So it's an entertaining uh, visual narrative as well as the, you know, scripted narrative, but it complements the game design and gameplay. Wow. So Jack of all trades kind of thing there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you want to do as much as you can to to create a singular experience for you know for a gamer and make it as enjoyable each step of the way and intuitive right like ui layout and even what your you know your character's unlockables and leveling experience could be like how that you know how that's visually represented so it feels rewarding and that you have the proper you know tools to understand how to how to get better yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And uh, and what what uh what are you currently working on? I think you you might have you might have moved uh onto something different from yeah. the last time we spoke. Yeah, I'm still doing some VR, some amazing VR stuff. I'm now I'm I'm working on a game that just released about a month ago. It's called Larsenauts. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you it's kind of like uh, Overwatch in VR, uh, pretty much. You play it's a hero shooter. It's the only the only real hero shooter in VR and you take on the role of one of eight specialists and um, you know, it's a super fun romp, you know, very competitive, a lot of abilities and weapons and uh, power, you know, different power slates that your character can exercise. And you just gotta, you know, learn how to use each character to their, to their uh, strengths and how to, you know, how each one is a, more competitive to to some of the other characters in the game some might Mm -hmm. seem overpowered but you just don't know how to approach them yet you know it's all Mm -hmm. it's all kind of a journey and fun to explore Um, but yeah it's a great it's a great shooter it's very immersive um, and it's got a cool narrative to it it takes place like not only in the future but in another galaxy so there's all kinds of you know we have robots we have aliens we have humanoid type characters yeah, you can you can you know choose different skins. It, there's a lot there for a VR game. It offers more than than most, and, and it's super fun. So with the art and creative director aspects, kind of that overlap there that you were mentioning earlier, um, you were able to kind of create some of the lore. For yeah, I mean, you know, I I again we we have we have a whole team of people that contribute to that it's not just me it, it, mm-hmm. it and we had a dedicated writer and we have people who come up with um all these ideas and then as we execute them and start to make concepts and refine there might be additional ideas um proposed and we and we try to i always like things to be as intuitive as possible you look at somebody you can kind of tell their story a little bit and uh. as as we're creating the concepts for what they look like um, will imbue some of those traits. So maybe the, the lore changes a bit, or, uh, maybe we add a few things and the, the last two characters that we, we just worked on, um, you know, are, are from the ground up from the team's uh, perspective. So we're adding things that I don't want to say too much cause they, they haven't, haven't been even announced yet, but. Oh know, yeah. We don't want to have spoilers here. <laughs> yeah. There's all kinds of, all kinds of work in our roadmap that's coming. That's, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be exciting, but yeah, we, well, you know, it's, it's a team effort and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talent that goes into all of these things. So I, you know, when, when things work best, I don't, I don't have to do as much. Um, <laughs> that's the, that's the best case scenario. I, right. I like to give people the, <laughs> the tools in the world to play in that, that they can create um, the best, the best work possible. And, and, and it keeps it, I like, to, I like to set margins and let people, um, you know, play and, and have fun within those margins so that it all comes out feeling cohesive at the end. You know what? And I think too, that that's the kind of creative space that I enjoy as well as like a collaborative creative mm. space. Yeah. Um, I really admire creators that can just, you know, poof out of nothing. I created, you know, the, the Tolkien's, the CS Lewis's, the, uh, what was that? Toby Fox or, uh, Undertale, like these people that can just create entire contained universes on their own. Um, but I think I found for myself, I work best collaborating with others. 
And I think I see a little bit of it. I hear a little bit of that kindred spirit and you yeah. as well. That it sounds like you're at your most creative when you're kind of bouncing ideas off of people and, and having that dialogue. I think that's the best stuff. I mean, you know, it, the creative process is, is it's, you know, nobody has a formula for it. So it works right. different differently for each person and each team and each production even. Mm. Um, I've seen the same team approach a completely different project in the same way that the last project, you know, was successful and it just doesn't work. You gotta, you gotta kind of feel it out and go with what, what's working right. for that particular thing. But yeah, it's, I've never seen a case where it's, it's better if one person thought of something and didn't mm. like, you know, wasn't inclusive of, from different perspectives being added and mm-hmm. um, it always can grow and be better. There's yeah. just, I mean, you, you get the serendipitous moments, right? Where somebody you could individually think of a thing and it's a great idea, mm-hmm. but then that execution, it's going to be better when you're getting multiple points of view. And there's, you know, I, I, I love it when somebody who's not a domain expert gives feedback like on art or, you know, there's always this feeling of like, oh, I'm not an artist, but you know, this looks weird. I, I, I love to hear that more than somebody who's seasoned or, you know, trained because it's the average person who's going to yeah. see it, you know? And so it's kind of like a, it's, it's a, it's a raw, real perspective and, you know, take that seriously. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that's so valuable too, because as artists, like we're so close to the material that we're working on. We see it every day while we're working on and that, that project it's, you know, filling our heads, filling our dreams sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult to see it from that fresh perspective as it's evolving. And so totally, like when I've worked on creative projects in my past, I've been like, let me show this to my grandma and see what she <laughs> thinks. Like my grandma doesn't know anything at all. She didn't before she passed on rest her soul, but she didn't know anything about video games. Sure. But she could tell you if something looks stupid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what did she think of Mario? <laughs> she thought it was a, a happy guy. Uh, you <laughs> used a word earlier too that I think is is a really good one, uh, and that's intuitive. Mm. So tonight, you know, we're really going to be talking about um, obviously something that fits in with your your work history and your talents. Uh, that being visual design and and just design in general, and and I think intuitive design is a really fascinating thing. So you, like you brought up like UI earlier. Sure. Um, and I got in a discussion with somebody who was like, really like UI is, is like visuals. I'm like, yeah, well, like you have to look at it. It's, it's, it's part of the graphics. It's part of the design there. Like thought had to go into that. Oh my God. And, <laughs> uh, and the discussion kind of turned, which seems obvious, right? The discussion well. kind of turned, right? <laughs> the discussion t- kind of turned into, um, all UI is created equal. Um, but I think that intuitive, (laughs) I think that intuitive aspect is really important, you know, hopefully if it's done right, look, look, most games, I don't know about these days, but like, we're talking like, maybe there's like a 10 year window. It's like 10 year, 10 years plus ago, UI was kind of treated like, okay, the game's almost done. Let's, let's do the UI. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such you know, it can be rushed and you could get something functional and it will start the game and maybe, you know, give you some options that, that are intuitive. But, uh, I mean, there's, there's UX as well, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the whole user experience flow. And a lot of times that 
is either mistaken, mistakenly treated as the same thing as UI, which it is not, mm-hmm. and or, or it's disregarded completely and somebody who's a UI artist is tasked with both things. Um, mm. But usually it's, you know, it, done properly, it's going to take the development cycle of the game pretty much. Ah. On Black Ops, we had we had printed out our UI on eight and a half by eleven pieces of paper. So like each each uh, aspect of say a multiplayer menu that you would go through, we had that pasted around the room, and it would encapsulate the entire circumference of the room. And we would always be looking at it and seeing, you know, if is that the most efficient flow? Because you know, th- there's different considerations. Like if you're making a mobile game, you're making a single player campaign menu, you're making a multiplayer menu. There's it's it's all just it's got its own criteria that needs to be met. Um, and like multiplayer, you want to try to get in there as quickly as possible, but, you know, have the options for cosmetics and, you know, doing, doing all the, the cool stuff that makes you an individual hero. Um, mm. But you also, like, if you, if you set it once and you just want to get back in a match, like, you know, being able to just smash a button all the way through and get in there quick with maybe two or three clicks is the yeah. goal. Right. And, and it's just, it's just setting up each thing to be like, yeah, we got to, we got to iterate on this constantly so that it feels like, I, I mean, it, I'm sure we've all played something, uh, some game that had 17 clicks to get into a menu or it's, or it's, <laughs> it's in a, it's in a sub nested, you know, uh, you know, options thing where you're like, why isn't that just in my regular options? You know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm it, thinking of vagrant story right now. I don't know oh. if you remember that one, no. but uh, yeah, there was like 17 clicks to equip like a necklace. <laughs> it's like, why am why do I have to do all this menu sifting? Oh boy. Uh, well, so yeah, James has worked on, uh, you mentioned call of duty, James you've done the matrix, uh, final fantasy spirits within, obviously we talked about last time. So I'm going to, I'm going to tag that episode in the description. Definitely go and listen to that folks. If you haven't yet, um, some other things from your website, defiance, yep. uh, medal of honor, yeah. um, uh, there's a there's a lot here so you also need to go visit his website people and and check it out there's a lot of cool just like the animations and visuals are really neat um but there's a, tonight there's a call oh, of duty easter egg in there too i just you know is uh, there i wouldn't uh, something that may have been never released before but i don't know where you'd find it because that's you know nazi zombies was all about easter eggs just saying i shouldn't even just be saying <laughs> easter egg it's you know it's, it's against the rules that's very mysterious. So yeah, definitely people, you gotta go, you gotta go look around, especially if you're a Call <laughs> of Duty fan. Uh, there are some people who um, brought up too just recently where I was like, hey, I'm gonna be talking to James again. And then after we did the last episode, they're like, you need to have this guy come back for like Veterans Day, talk about Call of Duty, Medal of Honor. Oh, Medal of Honor would be awesome to talk about. It's such, man, I, I could get into it right now. It's just, there's so much there, it's crazy. Yeah, we'll have to do a podcast on that then. We'll sure. we'll maybe we'll maybe schedule that one a couple a uh, couple weeks down the road or something. Um, provided you enjoy your experience with this one, which I hope so. Uh, <laughs> well, we're just about done, so this right, went right. well. <laughs> oh no! Um, <laughs> so anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about Metroid Prime. This is Magecast episode fifty-six, titled Metaphorce. Metroid Prime released November two thousand two. Uh, by Nintendo and Retro Studios on GameCube. And just to kind of kick things off, very positive note, got a few comments like this. Uh, but Sanity Crypto said, 
Thank you for being a part of the Prime Legacy. Speaking, of course, to you and not myself. <laughs> as it was a very welcome evolution to me personally as a progression of a beloved series. So there's, I mean, how's that feel? Like, there's a lot of people who really like this game, really love Metroid. And you're a part of that. Yay. <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm horrible at introspection. Um, no, it's it's great to hear. I'm glad I'm glad people enjoy it. You know, I've, I've I, even some obscure games that I've worked on. Every once in a while, if I have that shirt on at a checkout line, somebody will invariably make a comment about it, and I'm like, wow, you even know what this is? It's amazing. Um, so cool. you know, it's one of those things that you never you never know how something's going to resonate with an audience. So. It's good to hear when when it does um, makes you, makes you feel like you're you're doing something right some of the time. Yeah, I will kind of address those themes a little bit down the road here in this podcast. Um, but so that we sound uh, smart coming into this, uh, let's address it. Please, major, I've been waiting. Here. Right here we go. This is your this is your moment now. If we want to sound smart, this is it. Uh, mage facts. Couple of mage facts here. Metroid Prime was supposed to be a one off. Without sequels, can you confirm that at all? Do you know anything about that? Well, no, I don't know. Um, okay. Do I know that it was supposed to be a one-off? I never heard anybody say this was only going to be a one. Like the boss walked bonding. in and he's like, he's like, hey, we're not doing sequels, so pull out the <laughs> right. stops. I can't imagine. Like maybe that was the intent. Maybe there was no guarantee for any any sequels past the first one, but obviously anything that's a success is going to garner the desire for sequels. Um, yeah. Especially a Nintendo I, IP. I don't remember any undue pressure of saying, like, this is it, guys. You better make it count because okay. one shot out <laughs> the gate. But it's possible. I mean, that's, I mean, believe me, many conversations are had without my presence or knowledge um, that could directly contradict you know, any anything I know. Right. So I, mean, I, guess, I guess to get that out of the way, what was, like, your – like, you weren't the boss of, <sighs> of the Metroid yeah, Prime project. Like, you were – yeah, I know you don't want to be that guy. Uh, <laughs> so, what was your position? It would have been horrible. Uh, would have come out horribly. Uh, yeah. No, Mark Pacini was a game director. He was great. Um, but oh, we had, okay. Our whole studio had, you know, it was it was a lot of industry veterans that were brought together to make. I think we had four games in production at the time, and man, it was uh, it was a powerhouse of talent, for sure. Nice. Um, it's, you know, we had uh, we had a game called Car Combat. You want to hear about these? Yeah, and, um, I, yeah, yeah. So there was car combat. Guess what that was about? Um, uh, was it combat <laughs> with cars? It was a football game. And then, oh. oh, no, we had a football game as well as like an NFL football game. Uh, but yeah, car combat it was post-apocalyptic Mad Max type game. It would have been the only multiplayer game on the GameCube had it launched. Um, it was very far along. It was super fun to play. And um, it did not launch. It did not. All of the yeah. other games did not launch. Uh, football did not launch, and that was, um, you know, unfortunate because it it was in the finishing stages of its UI, as a matter wow. of fact. So it was very far along. They had even built a mo like a mocap studio uh, to bring in the Dallas Cowboys, being in Austin, Texas, and yeah. they did a lot of mocap with some of their you know stars of the team, and I think they even brought in the cheerleaders to mocap them. I don't. Know if that was necessary, but somebody, somebody did <laughs> somebody it. Somebody thought of it, <laughs> um, and it was a great game. Like it, it looked really good, and um, it was a complete football experience. I thought it, it, it felt super sporty and fun. And then Madden, 
announced that they were going to release on the GameCube. So Nintendo said, we're not going to compete with ourselves. We're not going to have a competing football game. Not with, you know, we're not going to go against a powerhouse like Madden. And they, they pulled it. Uh, wow. And you yeah. can actually find, like, so I just Googled these as you were talking about. You can actually find, like, imagery oh, cool. of Retro Studios football game mm. uh, on, on Google. That's a good-looking game. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I can't really recall anything other than my impression. I was not on that team, um, mm-hmm. but I can't recall anything about it other than it looked good to me at the time. I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. Uh, and Car Combat looked really good. I, don't, I mean, that was far from being done, but it was certainly playable and, and fun. And then there was Rune Blade, which was like a fantasy RPG kind of adventure game. Um, very, very oh. ambitious. And there well, was that's a, a shame that didn't get yeah. off the ground either. Metroid and RuneBlade kind of went to the to the ends at a certain point, and then you know RuneBlade even got canceled. So just wow. Metroid made it. So it, it, it made it a very like especially having a newborn baby and being in Texas, um, it made it very uh, you know as an employee and not the not the game director or any any pivotal role in the studio. It makes you. Uh, little apprehensive about what the future looks like and, and, and a lot of people felt that right like as games get canceled and 20 people get let go you know friends colleagues talent that you thought was irreplaceable um it was one of those titanic moments where you're like well we're in the back of the ship now guys um <laughs> who's gonna hit the propeller next yeah wow <laughs> And I recall you had mentioned just a snippet of these stories on the previous podcast we did together. Hmm. So I'm excited that we're gonna that we're gonna dig into this too. Uh, okay. I definitely want to get more of your design history info on that. It's your turn to look smart now. Uh, you got you got this next bit here. Well, you know, as uh, people often uh, pontificate, what is Metroid? But you know, what is where does this word come from? And it's actually a portmanteau of Metro, which is means city, and Android. Which is like artificial person. So, you know, figure it out yourself. Right. What does that mean? Now, we, <laughs> What's we a Metroid? <laughs> we can't be sure if we we're kind of chatting about this earlier. We can't be sure if uh, this is like a legit fact or not. Like, if the creators right. were like, "Oh, Metroid just sounds cool, so let, let's use that." I mean, or, like, a, uh, yeah, I can attest. I've I've come up with many different names for anomalies and characters and things that just sound cool to me and then down the line somebody will tell me what it means and i'm like oh i, I had no idea but cool that's <laughs> that's nice i'm glad yeah. there's, there, i'm glad there's deeper meaning attributed to it, it makes me seem smarter I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that and so and i didn't know metroid as a portmanteau of metro and android until like yesterday uh, metro i guess being like like metro underground subway type stuff so right. the subterranean world of the metro it kind of makes universe. sense I mean, yeah. I never even thought of it as anything, you know, being a fan of the original titles, like it was just always Metroid. I didn't really, right. I didn't even try Not to attribute either. anything to it. It's yeah. Like, I wasn't is, like, I wonder Spock what this mean? means. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's just kind of there. It's a fantasy word. Uh, and so uh, Metroid Prime was also one of the best selling GameCube games, plus the second best selling game of 2002 in North America under uh grand theft auto vice city uh that's quite a lot of units pushed that sounds like a lot yeah i mean we all know grand theft auto is like you know the king of of selling copies um 
So evidently this game did quite well. And going together with that, I was obviously the critical reception. Oh, yeah. Like, I think Electronic Gaming Monthly awarded the game perfect score, which is like, you know, wow, perfect. I could show you some flaws, but great. Um, <laughs> I think that's always the artist's response. Like, oh, dear. Uh, boy, if you only knew what I knew. Um, right. And Metroid Prime in general just received numerous Game of the Year awards and stuff, and the team deserved it. For sure, like I, I consider my contribution to be, you know, little little seeds that got, you know, germinated by others, and you know, they did a, they did an amazing job. Bringing it to yeah, life. I mean, it's a, it's a beloved game. It's been. I, I went to Metacritic, um, where I think, like, let me look it up so I don't just pull a number off my head. Uh, Metroid Prime, there it is. Yeah, on Metacritic, it's sitting at a 97 out of 100 Metascore. Uh, not good enough. And this game is not new. I take it back. The team was terrible. It should have <laughs> been at least a 98. <laughs> it should have been a 98. Uh, that's a high score. That's that's a very Yeah, no, I'm kidding, obviously. I joke. I kid. I'm just, Right, you know. and they're not listening, so they're not going to be like, God, oh, I hope how not. dare James said <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, well, then also we're looking forward to Metroid Prime 4, yeah. which was announced at E3 2017 and is currently in development for Nintendo Switch. And James, mm. do you have a release date for us? Yes, I do. It is uh, coming soon to, you know, soon. And that's it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'm so glad that Retro got it back and that Nintendo took the pretty drastic steps to postpone its launch to... Make sure it was being done right. That's that's awesome, and it, it's it's really awesome to know, like, almost a whole new team's perspective on it. Like, there's a few people there that were still on, you know, were there when Prime was being developed, and I don't I don't know what the ratio is anymore. I know a lot of the top studio management left, and a lot of the art and engineers left to go do other amazing things. But mm-hmm. um, so getting a fresh perspective on it's always awesome. So you that. don't have any you don't have any juicy tidbits about Prime Four. They didn't call you up for consultation or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, okay, not this time. <laughs> Maybe next time, Metroid Prime Five. Yes, yeah, uh, I only do the odd the the odd numbers. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking a little bit on the game content, um, now again, we're gonna really emphasize kind of the design. Uh, and talking about Metroid Prime tonight, not so much the story uh, or gameplay, things like that. Uh, a big question that I have is um, you know, kind of the counterpart to the question that I asked you when we were talking about Spirits Within. Do you watch your own movies? Do you play your own games? Uh, so do, have you played Metroid Prime yourself? I've never played it after. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, we play it a lot when we're making it. You know, you have to. Uh-huh. You have to. I mean, you should right that's the key yeah i mean any game is but that you know that's not a it's not a common understanding or even practice a lot of people who are creators don't take the time to actually play it sometimes it's a limitation especially working remotely sometimes you know Ah. dev kits and things aren't available or um you know making a build and participating in certain things isn't isn't always a possibility for people but even when you're in a studio there's there can sometimes be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just an artist, so I just want to make my thing and make it as awesome as I can and then plop it in the the old directory there and somebody will put it in the level. And that can uh-huh. be fine. Um, but I think 
there's there's something that happens when you actually experience what you're making and and that there's like a there's like a growth that happens when you see it in context and being utilized in the way it's intended it it can help you focus more and build a better thing you know better prop or you know make your level more appropriate for what's happening in that in that moment um you know gives you insight that you wouldn't normally be able to get so but do I play it? Yeah, I mean, you play it through, through um, you know, the production of it. I was not there till the end on Metroid Prime, uh, but I played it a little bit afterwards, you know, to see how it came out. But I, I didn't, it wasn't my copy. It was just a friend of mine that was playing it. And I was like, oh, I'll check this out and see how, see how this all came together. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I've never finished uh, it. I never played it all the way through. Okay. Well, there's a, I, I don't, I, I'm guessing you can't confirm or deny this either but i guess there's a rumor going around right now that they're going to bring the metroid prime trilogy to switch Mm -hmm. uh which i'm hoping for i played them on the wii with the motion controls um right not the gamecube versions but i'd be delighted to see these kind of see the light uh, of day again yeah Uh, they're very fun to play yeah Yeah. totally it would be great i think it would be a you know basically a whole new generation that could experience it. I mean, on the Wii, yeah, on the Wii, it was great with the motion controller. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, you got to point, like, Samus gun. After a certain point, it kind of cramps your thumb, you know? But <laughs> it was still cool. Yeah. <laughs> but a biggest, uh, maybe kind of like the crux of a lot of feedback that we got, questions, comments, uh, has to really do with the transition from 2D to 3D. Uh, here's a question from Bookworm who said, is there something distinctly weird and transitional about that era of games such that Final Fantasy VIII, Wind Waker, and Metroid Prime are recognizably of an era? Earlier you'd mentioned that um, you're familiar with the original game there, Mm -hmm. uh, Metroid. So this is now, obviously, Metroid Prime is not a 2D platformer. It's it's a first-person shooter. so some of the other questions we got here from AHA360, what made the developers choose a first-person perspective for Metroid Prime? JTorto40, moving Metroid from 2D to side-scroller, or from 2D side-scroller to FPS was a big jump. And one I recall many fans of the series being critical of before the game was released sure. was the biggest driver in moving the game into the 3D FPS realm. Uh, and then he's got a couple of follow-up questions here, but... You know, I mean, you weren't supervising the thing. It's not like you, James H. Darji, was like, we're going to make a 3D. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) And people were just like, sure, whatever. Right. They're like, whatever James (laughs) wants, cheese. Okay. Sounds like a good idea. Um, (laughs) You know, yeah, I don't, I totally, obviously not involved in those um, conversations at that stage of my career. But, you know, even, even more so, I was hired. So Final Fantasy, Spirits Within. I, that was my previous production just before Metroid. Um, and I, I can see all these little, when you look back on your career, you can see how they all connect um, and uh-huh. lead you in certain spots. It's hard, harder looking forward, but it's easy to look back and see the connective tissue there. But the, um, I wasn't even hired from, for Metroid. That was not a game that Retro was making when I was hired. I, we were working on a completely different game. Which, Real, so was it uh, one of the games that you'd mentioned? no. No, another one. I I don't think it's a secret or anything, but I don't know how widely known it is. It was a game called Metaphors. And, you know, so it had an M in it. 
so they just figured, what the hell, give them Metroid. It's the same kind of thing. But we were making, it was like a third-person um, adventure game, I guess. Uh, and it was like a, it was another uh, female um, protagonist, you know, heroine that you played, like a sci-fi kind of thing. So it was a good, I think it was a good indicator to Nintendo that we could do, you know, we could do a game like that. And I don't know, you know, the decision to make it first person, I don't, I don't even think the studio was embracing that right away because we made a third person Metroid first. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot you know, that's dropping in. I'm going to assume that all of this is out there on the internet somewhere, but these are the things that happened as I lived them. So I, I, I will only, I'll tell you what what I know and I don't, I don't, I don't see any reason why not to divulge that sometimes productions are a little crazy and sometimes crazy things happen. So we were making when we got Metroid. So they, they brought us into a room one day and said, you're not making Metaforce anymore, which we probably all assumed we were out of a job at that point, but we're going to get Metroid. And I know a lot of people were still bummed about that who knew Metroid. I was like, Oh, cool. I like Metroid. Oh, and that was your reaction. You were like, I like Metroid. I get to I mean, work on. Yeah. This I was pretty much like, I don't, you know, why would I not want to any known IPs better than trying to create one? You know, obviously people, there's a recognition value to unknown IP. So that seemed all positive to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was a fan of the, the original. So, um, and the super NES version. So I, you know, I was fine with it. Some people were bummed. They wanted to continue the metaphors vision, but you know, we, we made a third person Metroid. I mean, yeah, third person Metroid. And when Nintendo came to visit, they, you know, to, to, to see it, I mean, they were, they were a little shocked to see that it was not first person as they had asked. So I know, I know that they wanted a first person and, and I, um, uh, I think, well, let's see, GoldenEye had already come out. So that was definitely a factor that maybe they wanted to, um, you know, delve deeper into that legacy of a first person shooter that was successful. And we'd also heard that like Miyamoto, um, he had felt that like third person action titles can't be executed properly in 3d. So he wanted to, mm. you know, gold, like I said, gold and I had proven that the first person perspective could be successful. So I think he was trying to, you know, emulate that success with Metroid. But that's just my, you know, that's my detective work that I'm imbuing. (laughs) Well, I mean, you were there. So like, I would, I would trust your guess on that rather than somebody else. So it was, yeah, it was like when we found out, oh, we're not, oh, by the way, you know, we're making a first person Metroid that came after our demo of third person was like, what? Then it seemed like head scratching time. Like, why, why are we doing that? That seems odd. Okay, so so it was originally Metaforce that you're working on. Then it got switched to Metroid. You did a a third person game, and then it went to FPS. <laughs> yeah. uh, it sounded like yeah, there would there would be a lot of head scratching moments there. Um, it definitely following off of GoldenEye 007 on uh, N64 by Rare, who knocked that out of the park. I mean, that was a really really beloved uh, game that defined that that console um because it's interesting as well too that there was no metroid game on n64 right yeah so you mentioned that you'd played super metroid on the snes uh and then there was no metroid for a whole generation of nintendo consoles and then now with the gamecube there was an opportunity 
to do uh, Metroid in first person. Um, I guess like like to kind of tie together this section of where we're talking about um, first person shooters, like maybe do you think that there were any do you think that there were any like particular um, changes, I guess, that you had to make in what you were working on um, to to help in that transition? Oh, from sure. Yeah, not just 2D, but 2D to third person to first person. Well, I mean, certainly from 2D. I mean, um, but, you know, transitioning from third to first person, like it, it's all about you know, the, the player understanding the space that they're in. Right. So it's a lot easier in third person. You build things. You can even build things a little bit more accurately um, to real world dimensions in third person. You have kind of control of all of it, but in, in a first-person game, it's the perspective of the camera that really matters. So a doorway that might look, you know, or might be the correct dimensions of a real-world doorway might look too small in the game. So you have to, you know, you have to come up with some kind of metric to know how to build things to scale and and work. Some I don't remember if Metroid was like this, but I know on like some of the other first-person shooters I've worked on, the first-person part is rendered in with one camera and the backgrounds rendered with a different one. So you can kind of, you have different FOVs and, and the whole point there is to try to find the right combination that feels the, the most natural. So, you um, know, it's, it's basically like a, it's a do over at that point, you know, you can, you can save some broad stroke things, but you have to, you have to refine all the details and, and the way it, the way it feels when you're playing it. So, and you, so you have to kind of then exaggerate every, the, the scale of everything than when you're going to first person. Right. Uh, I Well, and I imagine, I mean, Metroid Prime didn't have normal doorways, so at least there's that. <laughs> I built that doorway, as a matter of fact. The, I, it's on your page. I, yeah. I forget I forget sometimes. And, and un, unbeknownst to me, it, it was probably just in the back of my mind from playing the previous Metroid, you know, scrollers. Um, those doors in the, in the 2D side scroller were like an iris kind of, you know, they were hemispherical, kind of uh, convex shaped, and they, they kind of irised open and closed. And that's what I made for Metroid Prime, just kind of, that's just either, you know, the back of my brain taking control or just luck. <laughs> that there's okay, a so parallel there, there. Yeah. So that parallel is fascinating. I mean, I kind of want to touch a little bit more on that here. I also do want to just say, that I think Iris is such a more elegant way to explain those doorways rather than sphincter. Because <laughs> um, I'd always thought of them as sphincter doors, but when you said Iris, I was like, you know, of course they're Iris doors because they're they've got that uh, was it concave element to them, especially in the the two D Super Metroid. It's a mechanical um, orifice. It's a mechanical <laughs> orifice. There you go. That's a that is still more elegant than sphincter. That's the last resort. That's the, you know, yours is the last resort to describe it. Right. Right. The, the pucker, so, the pucker door, the pucker door. Uh, so, so that's interesting then though, that you maybe subconsciously had kind of this carryover of design <laughs> yeah, from super Metroid. So you mentioned the doors. Is there anything else oh my in God. Metroid that you worked on that you could specifically identify as like, oh. yeah, I, I tried to fit into the tradition of design from the previous metro oh my god um well i mean the i had worked on like i said like a lot of the stuff that i did especially you know like initially was like 3d conceptual type thing so like i made 
I don't know how many morph balls, um, probably like seven or eight completely different styles that, you know, we were trying to imbue each of those with some special look that would differentiate them and um, a, lot, a lot of variation there. Uh, you know, the, the HUD, I just, like I said, come off of Final Fantasy and I worked a lot with the HUD and Hologram. I was the lead on that effort for Final Fantasy. So uh, I did a lot of prototyping and different HUD work, um, which was eventually, you know, expertly animated and tuned by others at the studios. It was, uh, like I said, very talented team that could do all these things that everybody seems to enjoy. Uh, but I, I, you know, I worked on how Samus's gun arm works with, with that team for a while, like, uh, the ship, I guess the, the ship is probably the most, uh, direct thing they initially had given me freedom to design any ship for Samus that I wanted to. Ah, that would have been my next question. This is Samus ship. We saw what that looked like in super Metroid. Right. So, but they originally just said, yeah, you could do whatever you want. Yeah. So I made some pretty outlandish things. I mean, um, I, I, you know, when somebody says make whatever you want, you almost feel like, okay, you don't, you don't really mean that, but (laughs) it sounds like you're asking for something beyond the original. So let's, let's try that. And I, and I tried some different, you know, like, like cool bounty hunter type, type ship designs with, you know, I still, you know, I have a bunch of them, but you know, it's like almost like a, a B-wing fighter kind of approach where the cockpit was was more of the central stationary aspect of the ship and the ship rotated around it with different wings and gun attachments that would come in and out and you know just a lot of a lot of iteration in that in that department and and then you know the I don't know they just decided at one point well, let's let's harken back to the to the super um, Metroid version to see if we can make a 3D representation of that, but we, you know, we, we don't know how it looks beyond the, the front profile. And so I, I got to design pretty much the whole aspect of it. Um, you know, what it looks like, what it, you know, how it, how it operates, like, you know, those, those, um, thrusters on the bottom, they were, they were always misinterpreted as guns. Originally everybody called it the gunship. I don't know if that was a holdover from the original Metroid. I don't, I don't recall that, but yeah, uh, me neither. But everybody would always call it the gunship. And they're like, they're not guns, you know, this... right? <laughs> so I, I mean, yeah. they look like them at a glance. Yeah. but I think the game very early on shows you that they're like navigational thrusters. Absolutely, yeah, they're reaction control thrusters. And I, so I, I animated the ship to you know emulate how it should look and how it takes off and lands and how these things you know have different configurations for different modes that it's traveling in and that, that made more sense. Um, the ship never had a, an official name. You know, I don't, I, I think that's a, I think that's a missed opportunity myself. I, yeah. I had always called it the thrush Eterna when I was making it. Cause I like, I don't know exactly why, but I just thought of it, it sounded like a cool name and it's kind of, it's kind of got like a, a bird like stance to it in some ways. And thrushes yeah. are fast and it's probably Thrush, eternal. Yeah. So, you know, that's, the, the ship was was really cool to work on. I, I seem to have worked on a lot of spaceships from time to time, and that was a fun one to do. And I actually have a model of it sitting right next to me here. What? The, yeah, there's somebody, some company made like a really cool, uh, was it figure five, I think? Um, oh, They made nice. a really cool one, and, and it looks like, I don't know if they got the 3D file to make it or what, but it's pretty accurate. 
when you bought that, were you like, hey, by the way, I designed it? Can yeah. I have like a discount? Yeah, they, and they were very kind to uh, to accommodate a little bit, but it was. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, had to get I totally that. would have pulled favors on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I was going to ask you too. Did you ever consciously think this is like a question that I've had in my head for decades? Did you ever think that like Samus' ship is supposed to look like her head, mm. like her helmet? Is that kind of the I think the so theme of that design. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean the color scheme alone is is very relatable. But yeah, I mean the, every vehicle has a as a person. Every well designed vehicle has like a personality behind it. Yeah. Uh, so you know, giving it that kind of personified look, the face, the stance. Like, is it aggressive? Is it is it supposed to look fast? Is it sleek? Um, you know, or is it a big piece of junk? You know, like like the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> is it? You know, I think you know it. it every well designed ship should have should have some kind of immediate emotional response to how it you know how its character is supposed to be in that world. Yeah. Even though we all look I, at the Millennium Falcon, we know it's not junk. We think it's the coolest thing. Right. But the people in that world are like, oh, this is not the uh, yeah. this is not the uh, chrome reflective Starliner that we all expected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm gonna go on a limb and say that. Uh, the thrushy Turna, Samus' ship, it, it has like a feminine quality to it that I mm -hmm. think is evoked uh, as well in Samus' own uh, suit design. So it's just, it's it's a really beautiful, I've always loved that look of Samus' ship. It's like she gets in her suit and then she gets in her ship and flies her head around the galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just awesome. That's what that's what the, the Joker used to do in all the old Batman comics. Yeah. Drive, drive around in a car with his head on it. Right, you remember the classic Batmobile with like the <laughs> Batman like frame on the front of it? That's hilarious. That's great. Um, so another big question: uh, Where's Kraid? Kraid, of course, being uh, one of the primary villains there in uh, that you fight in uh, Super Metroid. Um, right. Um, where is he? Um, I don't is there know, like an uh, Easter egg? I'm not for sure, that? if he's a he. I don't, oh did, yeah, did, right. Did any Where of it is... make it? I don't know. If, well, so I know he was made. I know. I know he was modeled and textured. I know that. Oh really? I know that okay. happened. Um, and I think, I think at a certain point, I was putting his skull to allude to him, even like as a foreshadowing element. I think I put him in one of the Chozo ruins or something. So one of the levels I don't remember, but I don't even know if that made it uh, in the game. But I think you know, modeling, concepting something, modeling it, texturing it, even rigging it for animation. That's like step one, you know, <laughs> and then right. there's all there's tons more work that needs to go into a character to make it, you know, up to the standards of the rest of the game. And I, I mean, if memory recalls, I think it, there just wasn't I think the team just decided there wasn't time to do that character justice to, you know, mm -hmm. to bring it to that level of quality. So it, it probably just stopped at the modeling texturing phase. And um. yeah. That's a killing the darlings, uh, kind of. But it's a like, it's a good it's a good indication of like you know a well run studio that can make decisions like that, right? Like instead right, of rushing right. it or, or you know trying to trying to impose a, an unrealistic deadline for something that just save it for later. Yeah, I mean that is smart. I think in the past, well, certainly in the time since Metroid Prime uh, originally came out, I think we've seen studios make games that are either just like bloated there's too much mm -hmm. just kind of stuffed in there or rushed uh or even games that you know 
should have had maybe more realistic deadlines or couldn't make their deadlines or rushed for their deadlines. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's it's sad that we, we can have, a, we can have a whole show just about that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've got thoughts on that. Uh, that's sad we didn't get Craig, but well, that's all right. he was there in spirit, game. you know, somewhere. I mean, he was made. So, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't I don't know if that model was ever utilized later on or if they probably just remade it. So this is going to sound like a really like layman question. Is he in like the code or anything? Is that how that works? It's possible. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know what to to what degree anything was worked on by other departments. So it's totally possible. I mean, you never know. Uh, Somebody knew how to huh. look into into the inner workings there. They might find something. Usually, uh, things. I mean, something like Craig would have had a a known name already, but sometimes code names are used or just temp names that never change from the code side or from the development side. So maybe because we were talking about the door, I guess the, the other thing, there's also an Iris shaped door on top of Samus's ship, put that in there because uh, right. she pops out of the top of the ship, which I think is still a cool way to do it. I even, I, I have a bunch of hidden hatches at the bottom of the ship that have guns that come out a la again, the millennium Falcon with its hidden blasters underneath um, the hull there for like you saw in empire strikes back. A lot, of, a lot of Star Wars inspired. I was actually inspired more by Fifth Element, if that's, that makes any sense, but it was the Mondashuans in the Fifth Element. Okay, so they that's have those... a deep reference, the Mondashuans? <laughs> yeah, they have those big, they're like the big gold uh, alien oh, uh, spaceship, yeah. and they, they had those okay. like kind of pipe details that would stick up off the back of their spacesuit. Um, that's that's kind of what the, that's what the Thrush was, was kind of, that was kind of the motif for that ship. Ah, Interesting. I do I do stuff like that. Like I've designed spaceships before. I was eating a bowl of ziti one night. You know these tube shaped pasta with the they're kind of cleaved off at an angle at the end, and and I just happened to pick them up, like in in this perfect configuration that they they met in the middle and they tapered off on either side. And I'm like, that's a great thruster. Uh, and, <laughs> and I designed one of my spaceships uh, take to uh, one of the fighters for battle cruiser as, and that was. That was the engine configuration, the, the ZD fighter. Um, but uh, everybody does that. Anybody that's doing concept work, or you're influenced by all kinds of things you hopefully don't expect. It just you know you're open to the to the inspiration when it strikes. That's sort of the nature of inspiration, right? It just kind of pops. Yeah. Uh, there was a question here too at Games with Coffee: What elements and flora fauna from the real world would you say influenced the design of the environments and creatures within Metroid Prime? So uh, you mentioned noodles or pasta. <laughs> no pasta. <laughs> I would never would have never would have guessed. Uh, but uh, what what other inspirations uh, did you draw from or just discover? I mean, it's 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 a very insightful question. Um, I think. And, and oddly, I, I did do a lot of like flora type explorations when I started. I, I worked a lot. I like to I like to try to find something that exists, right? So I was I was doing a lot of amber research, like um, you know, Jurassic Park mosquitoes embedded in amber type type looks. So they had this translucency to like uh, a strange looking pustule kind of kind of thing, and uh, cattails and things that grow in the swamp, like you know blossoming kind of protruding plants and fungus pods things things that i think we, we've all probably seen in some capacity but trying to exaggerate their features or 
present them in a, a otherworldly fashion is usually pretty successful because like your brain kind of registers to, to what it is and uh, but then you're seeing it in a new in a new light and it, and it seems more amazing that way yeah and i mean you've got things on here where you've got uh it looks like a chozo totem yeah um so not just i mean it's not like you're just creating just like oh here's a lizard but it's an alien lizard or here's a <laughs> right. monster but it's an alien monster you you're also creating architecture that combines uh organic or biological aspects like these cho chozo totems that have these kind of like bird these gaping howling bird mouths on them they're like yeah. nightmarish uh so it, it appears that i mean you can really draw inspiration from just about anything uh and then combine them in interesting ways yeah i think at a certain point you're you're you know sometimes it's you have like an, an easy in you're like oh, i know i, I kind of know what i what i want that to be like and other times you're like just doing a mad panic rush to try to fill you know <laughs> i gotta fill the page with something to start with and uh you know what, what could it be and so you a lot of times like I, I have this huge repository of just interesting images and i just add to it over the years it's pretty pretty large at the moment and I'll, I'll try to organize it into like oh these are interesting silhouettes or this is an interesting texture or this is just a weird thing that you know could be useful down the road and Luckily, I still have the capacity to remember some of those things, and I. But it's fun just to go back and look through it all and see, like, oh yeah, like here's something I never even I never executed on, and I could I could use it for this project. Yeah, that's cool. And you're you're keeping you're you're keeping track of all the inspirations <laughs> that have taken place. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think well, I think a lot of artists do that. It's not unique by any means, but it's just you know it's good to it's good to keep and and you start to see these emerging patterns that come out of the things that you like, and it actually helps helps you to refine sometimes you're not super conscious of the things that um, at least i'm not uh, i work a lot on feeling so I, I know i'm not the best uh uh you know don't look to me for for lessons and how to do stuff but I, I work on feeling like if it if it doesn't feel right sometimes i can't articulate why but i just know it's not there yet so let's you know we need to work on it sometimes it's immediately obvious and i can articulate why it is or isn't successful uh, but I think it's almost like you can kind of see how your mind works when you look at a, at a, at a big directory full of varied images and how, how you're keying in on certain things. It, it helps educate uh, you about like, you know, your, your instincts and where they come from. So what do you do when you're designing something and it doesn't feel right? So like there's a picture, mm -hmm. well, it's an animation here of uh, one of the morph ball yeah. test designs that you did and you remarked that this one looks a bit medieval <laughs> right uh, and I, I would agree with that it kind of does it looks like a vise like a knight's visor yep. that just completes itself you know by spinning um or closing around itself or however you want to say that so when you when you're creating say something like that that doesn't make it in or another morph ball that maybe it doesn't feel right like what do you what do you do about that? Is there the benefit of collaborating? Yeah, I think, you know, stuff like this, especially in the position I was in, you just make a lot, you know, like whatever's on the website is, you know, 10% of, of anything. I, most of it's not even real, like real game content. Well, some of it might be, uh, but point being there, the, nobody said like, here's what this, the world of Metroid Prime is going to look like. Um, you know, Todd Keller was our art lead on that project and he would sketch a lot of things really quick 
either like you know on paper or in the computer you make you know these little diorama examples of things and we try to emulate that and grow off of those initial um, looks that he was going for and of course we had a super talented concept team andrew jones was the you know main concept artist on the project uh, you know just a, a wellspring of, of creativity and, and uh, talent there but uh, you know there's not time to concept everything or to even treat everything the same way of how you get from point a to final so like i was just making a bunch of morph balls and even though i might not like something you know i'll, I'll put it in the mix and see because if somebody else likes it then there might be something there that um, i'm not seeing that might mm. be you know transferable to the next iteration you know of that um, but it's always good yeah it, in, in a collaborative environment it's good to to see like a bunch of options for something that's undefined in in a 3d way and see how that would you know benefit the gameplay or the look and, and as we're refining what samus even looked like because like i mean i worked on the the initial reveal of samus like coming out of her ship and you know that texture that kind of more gritty textured look to everything wasn't you know even though that was our reveal and it was very exciting for you know the people who saw it in attendance of that e3 or whatever it was shown at um it's not even what we ended up shipping the game to look like um yeah, yeah she <laughs> she kind of looks like she's been uh refined quite a bit since that initial um that initial reveal there it almost looks like she's like maybe a little shorter, clunkier. And then by the time you get to the gameplay, the fun thing is like, I'm on your website right now. I'm looking at these animations side by side. Um, so I could see like how, how it eventually turned out. And then sort of like this prototypical Samus here. Um, it really exciting to see just the, the differences there and how those things must've changed over so many decisions uh, over time. Yeah, and I, I think that's the sign of a healthy team that can that can continue to reassess what they're making and and try to refine that. I mean, the environments kind of stayed mostly the same, but you know that more right. that more shiny look to Samus and the almost procedural look to like the more fall and more Tron-y kind of kind of behavior. Oh, Tron-y. Yes. <laughs> you know that kind of <laughs> that was all. You know who who would have who would have guessed? You know nobody said that from the beginning, so we were just working our way through that process to get to something that everybody felt was, was really cool. And of course we got a lot of you know, feedback from Nintendo on all those things. And iteration is key, I guess. I mean, that's, that's the main deal. Like, I don't, I don't remember who came up with it. I don't think it was my idea, but I did the first prototype for the reflection in Samus's visor. Um, really? Cause we were oh. talking about it. And again, like who knows where these ideas come from, but it was like a small group of us talking about because you are in a helmet, wouldn't it be cool? Like there was a flash that you'd actually get a glimpse of who you are in there. Um, and I went back to my office and prototyped it really quick. And, you know, in fairness, mine was pretty scary um, <laughs> because I did it. You know, I, I tried to do this female head really fast. And I think I took like a, I think it was, might've been Cindy Crawford image at the time and just plopped that <laughs> on as a texture. So you just see like at least some vestige of, uh, you know, female, traits on, on the face in the reflection and yeah mine, mine was a little scary certainly not the one that shipped but you know that 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 was fun to to be part of and, and to see like that inspiration moment just work its way so quickly into the production pipeline and get shipped was was 
you know, one of those fun moments that luckily, you know, that we saw the value in it and, and brought it all the way through. Yeah. That's amazing. That, that is amazing. I mean, this, this Samus design from Metroid prime uh, might just be my favorite. I, I really like that. Not just how she looks when you're looking at her, her character model, mm-hmm. but when you're playing as Samus and you get that flash and you see like her reflection right. there, or when there's, you know, the, the, uh, steam or something, you get little beadlets of moisture, uh, caught on her visor. I just think those are so many, there's so many fun, uh, elements there, mm-hmm. uh, that just make it feel like you're not playing a camera that you're playing, you know, a character in a suit. Right. So that's really cool. Um, well, what uh, what design challenges uh, were there? So we kind of talked a lot about um, what you worked on, and I would love to just pick your brain for the rest of the day on all <laughs> that stuff. Um, but we got a couple questions here along these lines. A gamer looks at 40-ass platforming in first person. Shouldn't feel as smooth as it does in Metroid Prime. I would agree with that. Uh, and then he asked, what was the process of making that mechanic work, and were there any specific hurdles in developing that mechanic? Uh, so making the game feel smooth, smooth and then also savage membrane. I was thinking about this question, like what were the toughest bits, which stages mm. are parts that posed a problem, any areas that needed extra polish, also your favorite areas and parts. So I don't know, maybe that would be an easier one to get out. What was like your favorite thing to work on? Oh, man. And then maybe you could talk about like what were, what were really difficult things? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, I mean, <laughs> anything, anything that you can create, from the ground up and, and conceptualize and make so like the ship and how the gun works. I mean, uh, Rodney Brunet was the artist, 3d artist. And like, I think he even raked a lot of the gun and did all the refinement to it till, till it was shipped. But, you know, initially we were all kind of contributing to different concepts and stuff. So especially something as iconic as the, the weapon that is going to be utilized most in a game. I mean, that's, that's always exciting, but I like spaceships. So, working on that was cool. And I did a lot of the pirate stuff and Chozo um, ruin. So, you know, who knows why these things were chosen? Um, you know, it's not like we had a big meeting and said, you know, what, what do you get? Everybody said what they wanted to work on, like as a, as a vote, we just kind of get what you get. And I luckily found some things that I, that I really enjoyed working on. So um, maybe that's just, Maybe that's just uh, keen management who knows what to give mm. each each artist. <laughs> that's possible. But yeah, I mean, I, I liked working on levels and, you know, kind of did everything back in those days, right? Like you pretty much be responsible for modeling out an entire level. You work with design, like Mike Wicken was our lead designer um, and, you know, always, always a great resource. He'd be checking in on us on what we're doing and how the levels are coming together in 3d before they're even in the engine. Um, a lot of, a lot of good insight there, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the Chozo stuff, I love the space pirates. I mean, I just, you just say space pirates to me and I'm off, I'm off and running. I love that. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot you could do with that concept. Like with say space pirates, you're like, all right, we're going to have fun designing. This. <laughs> yeah. And, and I like, and I like, look unique. yeah, I like that. We didn't try to just do something super predictable. Like, you know, our, you know, our eye patches and peg legs yeah. and stuff. You know, they're, they're more inspired by like wolves and bugs and things like that, which were. Yeah. Which you were didn't cool. go like a treasure planet route. You went like, 
Uh, well, I, I, I can see maybe a little bit of similarity between this, the Space Pirates in Prime and then the aliens in the dream sequence in Spirits Within. There's, maybe? A, there's a little carryover there that I don't, I don't think that's me doing that, but you know, we're all influenced by things that, because right. I, I worked on some of the models for those things and that was, um, it's possible. They, they, had, yeah. they had that same kind of hunch, you know. <laughs> right, the hunch. Yeah, yeah. I could see it. Uh, well, then, what were what were some things that were like just tough to work on, just difficult? I mean, it's, was there anything that was like, oh my gosh, um, this is taking for, uh, forever? The snow level was really tough for me. Okay, uh, that was a, that was a hard one. Anything that you, you try to make seamless and you know blend between textures and all that, especially at the time, the. As you can see, even if you look at the game today, there's a lot of texture seams and you know just penetrating geometry that doesn't doesn't flow smoothly. So you try to mitigate that as much as possible up front, um, you know, so that it looks more natural and and uh, you know th those parts are always challenging. But I mean, there's no easy part. I mean, there's there, like I said, there's certain things that you immediately graft onto and say, I think I know what I'm going to do on this. Let me go run with it. And then there's other things that you kind of have to think about for a while and try a bunch of different approaches before you, you, you key in on it or somebody gives you feedback that gives you an idea or, or is good feedback to execute on. Um, but it's all hard, you know, like I can't think of anything that was easy, you know, even, even right. if you have the great idea of like, I'm going to do this, then you just still have to execute and right. get, <laughs> bring it all the way through. And like, out of the, you know, now that the model's done, is it a fit, you know, is it optimized? Um, you know, is the, the textures are done is the is the shader the right shader for it or you know are the all the maps tweaked properly to you know to get the right kind of reaction with light and you know it just goes on and on that effects come in and you know is that is that working right and they're not guns they're thrusters you know so the, the, right. those types of, <laughs> just goes on and on you know well you know what it's it's really fascinating to me that you 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 led with mentioning the snow uh, area. Uh, I got to tell you, James, that is like, like I've talked about Metroid prime quite a bit since 2002. Uh, I didn't play it right at 2002, but since it's launched, it's, it's been something that's been discussed and a lot of people really, really fondly remember the Fendrana drifts, <laughs> the snow area. Uh, I, I mean it like when you talk about like music from Metroid prime, people are like, Oh my gosh, the Fendrana drifts. I just saw right here. I'm looking at Google images of it. Uh, there's a, there's an article where the headline says the first, or it might be a forum, um, title, but it says the first moment you enter Fendrana drifts in Metroid prime equals God tier gaming moment. Uh, there are people who absolutely love that section of the game. And so it's interesting to me that like, maybe there's, maybe there's some kind of principle. I mean, I don't want to say like, this is, this is a standard for the creative process, but maybe there's some kind of commonality where when something's challenging and you really work through it, uh, then that pays off in the end. It, the, like the work was, was put into Fendrana drifts. And that is an area that people really fondly, remember and i'm and i'm sure and it's very nice to hear but i'm sure that that's a result of a lot of different team members working on that level like oh I, yeah i have no yeah. idea if that you know i don't even know how much 
of what I did is is there. You know, it, it, it gets iterated on, it gets passed on to other people, and those, like I said, like at some point somebody's touching somebody's touching a level, um, you know, that you're not part of at that stage, and you're doing something else. But uh, it's good to hear. I mean, I, I I love I love to hear that because it was it, you know it was fun to work on. I, I don't even know if it was called that when I was working on it. We just called it the snow level. So. <laughs> right. Uh, that's easier to say than Fendrana drifts right. anyways. <laughs> probably probably didn't think of it yet. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Um and definitely, yeah. I well, you're so modest. I mean, like if I were you, I would have been like, Yep, I was me responsible for the entirety of Fendrana drifts. Sure. But uh, not 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 true, <laughs> but you know, um who knows? Who knows? Uh well that's the joys of creating uh with a team. Well, I think that's 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 the key, right? I mean, that is a key element of it. Um, even though, like, obviously, production productions have changed drastically in that in that time since then. You know, to make a Call of Duty level is not one person <laughs> trying to create right, something, right. or even you know portions of it. There's you know, fifteen plus people plus a bunch of other folks making individual assets that are going to set dress said level right you know this it's a very different approach these days but you know i mean and it's like you weren't making an indie either like this is this is a recognized ip uh guarantee there's a there's a team working on this thing yeah for sure uh speaking of teams then so like earlier you kind of mentioned there's there's some touching bases with nintendo japan and uh the management over there i think you mentioned shigeru miyamoto Mm -hmm. um so did you have to, like, was there direct collaboration that you did with Nintendo Japan? Did you, like, you met Sakaguchi or he saw your sure. work directly with the Final Fantasy? Yeah. Um, so was there was there any of that element here? Yeah, I mean, Miyamoto visited twice, I think. The first time was more just, like, kind of celebratory and welcoming, you know, kind of the, the meeting of both companies. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was the first. I mean, I never had any kind of meaningful, um, you know, feedback or one-on-one with him. We met, and you know, he's 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 very nice. I, mean, I can tell you that. I don't know if it was the first time or the second time he came, but he remapped the controller for Metroid Prime. He played the demo when it was in first person, and I think within like fifteen minutes had like suggested the way the controller should work to like do the lock on and the, the orbiting and firing and that's the way it shipped. So wow. yeah, he's the, yeah, he he's was the real deal. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's a smart dude and he's very, you know, he knows what works and what doesn't and pretty much figured it out. And we had obviously been working on it ourselves. It's not my department, but I know that we had tried different iterations of the controller mapping and um, yeah, his was on, on the money. So maybe that goes to answer a gamer looks at forty question. Uh, how does it feel so smooth? I'm like, yeah, Shigeru Miyamoto feels <laughs> smooth. <laughs> well, I mean, all the engineering that goes into it too, oh, like yeah, all of our engineers, of and but but you know the the the, the gamer, the user is only you know connected to the game through the controller. So that mapping is is essential to the feel mm-hmm. and the function. Um, but yeah, I mean, kudos to all the talented engineers that you know do all the stuff under the hood that makes it work properly. 
I, and so we kind of touched on this earlier. I did want to mention these folks' uh, questions. Sure. Uh, just about how familiar you were with the IP. And so you mentioned, uh, I believe there would have been three Metroid games before Prime. It would have been Metroid on NES, uh, Metroid 2 on Game Boy, and Super Metroid. I think that's it. Uh, did you play Metroid 2 on, on Game Boy? Th- th- that's tough. I don't think so. Um, I, okay. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I had that one, but I just had the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo version. So, like, how how old were you when you played, like, Super Metroid? I mean, ballpark. You don't have to reveal your age or anything. Oh, like that's that. fine. I, I just don't remember. I mean, I don't know. When did that come out? Do you know when it came out? I don't even... 94. Okay. I was off by a year. Yeah, not bad. So... Not bad. I, th- I thought it was much earlier, but, yeah, I mean, so I was probably, you know, I was, like, 24 when I played it. Um, okay. And then, so that's... I mean, to me, that would be amazing. It would be like, I just played Super Metroid in 94, and then, you know, Metroid Prime releases in 2002, so you had to have started working on it before that. Right. Uh, that had to be a cool feeling, just being like, I love Super Metroid, I get to work on the next Metroid. I mean, yeah, absolutely true. I, I I had a connection to that IP. I loved I loved the, the, the whole world of that game and um, I thought it was executed well. But when they told us we weren't working on Metaphors, we were working on Metroid, I just thought like, uh, cool. Like that's a known IP. That's something I at least know. So it's got a good mm-hmm. chance of being successful. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think I had any kind of affinity of like, you know, it being my favorite game or anything. Or um, mm-hmm. I just like sci-fi and I like video games. And that one was a perfect combo of you know bringing those two genres together and in, in, in a way that that works well like it was an adventure game as well so um i was a fan but it it wasn't it wasn't like uh it wasn't that rel- you know like it wasn't a revelation to me that i'd be working on it until in, until later like once you once you start to collaborate with like nintendo and everything and then it becomes a little bit more like oh wow we're, we're really making this you know yeah there's so many times you could be on a project and and, and again like hearing that one game's canceled this game you know this team's laid off this is happening you know the studio growing pains happens all the time um and then you hear like oh you're not doing this game you're doing this game you don't even know how real that is yet you know so when you first hear it you're like yeah cool (laughs) and like i said so we'll see (laughs) yeah like some people were just completely opposed that they wanted to finish the game that they started and I, I can totally relate to that. Um, right. So it was, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of mixed emotions going into that whole process. Looking back on it, I could probably say comfortably, I was excited personally because I knew that game and I was like, any chance you can to extend, you know, the legacy of, a, of something that you like is awesome. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so excited about that part of it, but I, I didn't really have a lot of deep lore knowledge or anything. I just knew it was a fun you know, side scroller that I would love to contribute to. Hmm. I, so I, I mean, I think that's a really like realistic response, um, coming from, you know, somebody who was there who worked on the game. I'm not a developer. I'm going to guess that like almost everybody who listens to this podcast is not a developer and we can kind of tend to maybe like over idealize or over glamorize 
like, you know, the heavens parted <laughs> and a voice said, James, thou shalt work on the next Metroid. And, you know, and you just floated off the ground and it, as an immaculate chorus played in the background. But this was a job that you did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is something yeah. that like you, you did work for that you got paid to do. Right. Uh, and I think that's worth saying, right? You know, that I, again, I think you just had a really realistic uh, answer. I mean, it's exciting. Well, I think what you're, you know. yeah, what you're touching on is an important thing. I, 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 at various times, people ask me questions like, how do I get in the industry? Or I want to, I want to be this type of developer, or I want to be an art director someday or something. And I think that's great. Um, I, I can give you as much advice and work mantra and ideology and, and, you know, maybe even workflows that might help you, but it, it, it's all just a job. Like don't, don't put your whole life's meaning into it. You know, like I, I, I do like to think of it. There's a par there's a good parallel to a lot of different industries. When you talk about the game industry, um, one of the being restaurants, you know, you, you want to, you want to give people nourishing, good food that they enjoy. Um, and, and maybe, they don't even realize it's good for them. But uh, there's also this like acting kind of parallel where like we're, we're all doing a job for a particular moment. And especially if you're auditioning for a role or you're interviewing for a position and you don't get accepted, don't take it personally. Don't don't think of it as a failing on your part. You present to a company what you can do, what you like to do. What, where your talents lie. Sometimes it's a fit, sometimes it's not. And it's better to know upfront that it's not a fit because I've been in situations where I've forced it or I've tried harder or maybe even, you know, whatever got me a job seemed good at the time to both of us. And then you find out as things evolve, you're like, eh, it's not really, it's not really what I want to do. And if you're not into it hundred percent, it's probably, it's probably better to just, you know, find something else. Um, so I think, I think looking at it in a healthy way, there might be projects that, yeah, sure. I would love to work on that. And I've, you know, I've tried several times and couldn't get it, but there's something that's, that's directly applicable and, and even, um, maybe even better for me. And I, I just don't know yet. So you, like to always be open to that and not, not look at it. Like it's, like you said, like it's not ordained. It's not this destiny thing. It's more like looking back on your career, you see, you see what led you from point A to point B to where you are um, and be open to what's happening going forward by just presenting your skill set as what it is and doing the best you can at the moment. And wow. usually good things happen. You know, you, you know, that is some wholesome wisdom right there. I, I doubt it. That's great. You know, no, I, when, when I listen to it later, I'll be like, well, I was the stupidest bunch of crap. No, but, no, no, no. <laughs> but I think, I think the, the, the main point is that, and, and people label it all different ways. Just like, don't, you know, don't, don't invest too much of it. Have a good balance to what you, you can do and what, what the, what the project needs and, you know, be, be aware of limitations as well. Like they might not be the right thing all the time for somebody, but so I, I always have like a very tempered, you know, view on things where, um, you know, getting offered a job that some people would hoot and holler about. My first thought is I should get another job quick because this one might die, you know, like, it, like, right. cause it's all temporary. Like I've been part of yeah. some of the, biggest successful teams out there and still curveballs get thrown your way, you know, and it's, it's rarely expected. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, a, I mean, no, I honestly think that there's a lot 
of good in what you just said that people can really take away from this discussion. Um, there's a lot of glitz and glamour in the world, you know, in in Hollywood, mm-hmm. in the games industry, and even in 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 my field, I spent a lot of time writing and trying to build a brand on writing and publishing writing and i'll meet people who are like how do i become a writer how do i you know publish my first novel and i think that people can become in love with writing to an extent that they forget that it's it's work yeah in the same way that people can become uh infatuated with video games and forget the fact that people had to put in hours to make that video game <laughs> that it's not all just it's not it's not all just i mean like you say you've created what, a half a dozen morph balls like it's, it doesn't just spontaneously yeah. flow from your brain like this creative process and i'm reminded and it's a tangent forgive me i'm reminded of uh the documentary that i saw for hayao miyazaki and studio ghibli mm-hmm. Uh, the kingdoms of dreams and madness where the poor guy looked like he was just having the worst day ever working on his things, just stressed out and, and it's, you know, hunched over with his cigarette and, you know, rubbing his eyes. It's uh, creativity is hard. It, you look at somebody like Miyazaki and think, Oh man, he's so creative. Things just must flow from his brain. Like, like this river of creativity and, being a creative person isn't always like that. I think sometimes that can happen, you know, like you were talking about inspiration or sometimes you might be eating something and be like, ah, there's my thrusters. <laughs> but, <laughs> but other times it's like, you have to, you have to suffer for your art, you know? Yeah. I think if you, if, um, if you develop techniques and you know, everybody should kind of know their own process and, uh, yeah. you know, nurture that process in, in the right ways. Um, and it, it, it can take a, a while before, those things are obvious, you know, to you. I think I always feel like there's 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 a frustration that happens when, like, if you are a creative type, you might have, uh, mul- you know, 10, 20 ideas a day about a certain thing, and then sometimes the frustration can come from, well, the committee or the person that has to pick the thing or that I have to convince is this is the right thing has one idea. <laughs> and hmm. they're fixated on it because they're not normally, you know, tasked with coming up with multiple ideas. So you also have to try to figure out ways to present your, uh, you know, the, the spectrum of ideas to somebody in a in a in a way that they can digest. And, and it seems like um, uh, is more is is more communicative to what what they're looking for. So really, like. It, it all comes down to understanding, like, the more you understand a game design, what the intent is for the game design, the more you understand the, the like, the emotional intent in a narrative, if it's a movie or a cutscene, the better you can, you can offer those ideas to it. So it always comes from this back and forth of, like, knowing, knowing the job and knowing the intent and then trying to facilitate it with what you can do. Interesting. Fascinating. Brilliant, I'll say. <laughs> uh, well... So, I mean, we've talked about Metroid Prime's critical acclaim. We've mentioned, you know, this the the snow level. People love it. Uh, we it's it's obviously a game that's beloved. Uh, what do you think it is about Metroid Prime that caught people's oh, attention? God, 
I wish I knew the answer to that because I would just repeat it all <laughs> the time. Just do that over again? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of those projects. It's, it's the whole package, right? Like, I don't think anybody expected a bunch of dudes from Texas to reboot a Japanese franchise and do it well. You know, like, so there was not a lot of, um, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of obvious choices happening. So why did it work? I think, I think maybe, you know, we were like a left field surprise, you know, um, overall, you know, like I said, the overall package is, is, is well polished. Um, it, the art was cool for the console, you know, it differentiated itself. It was unique. Um, we weren't really just a shooter, you know, we were more of an adventure game. Um, the audio is amazing. I mean, Yamamoto's music is amazing. So, you know, it's very eerie and transcendent. Uh, the game design is very, you know, it, it immerses you into the world. You go on this whole adventure um, and there's lots of fun and excitement attached to that journey. So there's not a, you know, there's like no dialogue in the game, right? So it's got this very haunting loneliness. Um, and, mm-hmm. and to me, that kind of reinforces more the exploration of the game um, where it's like, it's just you on this journey. And, yes. you know, but, but we also treated the gamer like an adult, right? Like we, we gave subtle direction here and there, and it was really up to the, to the player to kind of figure stuff out and how to get to certain points. So I think it's, you know, all of that together, it made people who play a game feel inventive and smart and good at learning, you know, the rules of the game and the, and the lore of the world. And it, so it grew their anticipation and excitement as they went. Uh, but it's, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, you, you, it's one of those things you change any, any aspect and it may, may not have been as successful and, it's really the epitome of collaboration, like all these things we've been talking about. I think if either Nintendo or Retro individually made that game without the contribution of the other, you know, who knows, right? It probably wouldn't have been as strong. So it's the high, you know, the hybrid of those two, not not just creative energies, but cultures coming together to make a great collaboration. You made it sound like that question was really hard, but then you nailed an answer. Ask me again, I'll give a different answer. answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean folks of folks like Retro Logic Games here have said Metroid Prime turned me on to the Metroid series. Never played a Metroid game before until I played Prime, then I was obsessed. Uh Chris BG99 said, not the first Metroid I ever played, but along with Fusion, the first I got. And I think that that element of it clicking with somebody is really important. So like you talked about that element of exploration, not really like foons, uh, foon speeding, spoon feeding <laughs> the player to be like, oh, you're going to go here. You just follow this icon on this mini map. Right. But rather saying like, you're going to have to explore, you're going to have to do the work to put, you know, put it into this adventure to figure out where you're going. And so I've met people that have played Super Metroid and Metroid Prime and they're just like, I get lost and then and then I, I quit. And it's like, yeah, that could happen. But then if you figure it out, that's such a rewarding experience, I think. Yeah, we're sci-fi Lara Croft, really. Yeah, yeah there you go. Wow, there you go. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, so kind of in passing, we've said some things here. Well, you've said things. I've listened. But you've said things about uh, Retro Studios and kind of, you know, the 
the way that it functioned back then, it's kind of interesting that they were working on all these separate games and then they just kind of evaporated. Hmm. Uh, and then only Metroid Prime came about. Uh, originally, Metroid Prime wasn't even Metroid Prime. It was Metaforce. So I don't know if you wanted to comment on that uh, or we can advance oh. to the next section. Well, I mean, you know, game uh, game development. We're, we're, I mean, I don't know how to... I think the, the movie industry is more mature in, in some ways, obviously. Uh, we, we, we still have a ways to go in terms of <laughs> how we treat employees and equality and, oh, yeah. and you know, yeah. inclusion. Um, but the games industry is even more, you know, still has, it's not as mature as the, the film industry, which, you know, you can have projects that have tens of millions of dollars put into them and, you know, in production get, get shut down overnight. And it happens in games even, even more frequently. Um, so it's not uncommon, the things or the rumors or the stories you hear about what, you know, may or may not have happened at retro, but it's, it's not an uncommon thing. You know, it happens to the biggest companies. And uh, I think it's, it's any creative effort, you know, probably Broadway shows, you know, <laughs> the same, have the same fickle nature to them. Um, sometimes things just don't work out. Like it, it's so amazing. I really, I really love bad movies, you know, like, you know, they're very entertaining to me. Uh, like uh, the, uh, you know, the, Ed Wood type things or the stuff that Mystery Science Theater makes fun of or like Battle <laughs> Battlefield Earth, for example. It's a fantastic movie for all the wrong reasons um, <laughs> to me. Um, and I think it's amazing when when it, when you do it long enough um, to see that even a really crappy movie is a miracle or a really bad game. It's a miracle it even got in a box or it got into the digital download section of your cart um just because so many things can go wrong um so you, you know you, you try to appreciate when things are going okay and um usually the the team that you're with is is not forever and people come and go so try to appreciate those moments so i think the like the stuff that happened at retro with games closing down and um you know people losing their job at the time is all Although, although it is common, it, it's tragic and it's always, you know, people usually respond emotionally to a lot of that circumstance. And mm -hmm. so, you know, rumors can get started and there's always a little inkling of truth here and there, but uh, especially a new studio that was as ambitious as retro to have that many games for Nintendo in production, like right out of the gate was, you know, anything that big and, and most you know, boisterous is going to, is going to be wrought with potential peril. Um, so yeah, things happen. When we were chit chatting before you mentioned that, uh, I think you, I don't know if the exact words you used were selective memory, hmm. but oh, yeah. you like to remember the positives. That's my, about... that's my weakness. Yeah. I, most productions are bad, you know, <laughs> cause it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> no, it's not bad, like bad people, but it's just hard. Right. And it's, it, you know, there's, you're trying to balance life issues and, you know, family needs to work issues. Yeah. And like, well, I, I could have made this better if I had just spent 12 more hours a day on it. Um, right. So you, there's, there's that struggle. So that it, in the moment, it always seems rather dire and probably amplifies the, the negativity. 
at, at the time. And then time passes, right? And I look back on it. And for me, I just remember the good things uh, about those periods and those teams and those moments. And, um, well, I mean, you said weakness. I think that's that's great. I think that's got to be good for your mental health, dude. That's, that's got to be, you know, something that helps you sleep at night, that, that helps you not nurse grudges and all the other things that we can easily do as human beings. Yeah. It's probably, it's probably great to remember these things as positive. Yeah, they call that living in denial. So I, uh, <laughs> I live in the matrix. I live in this false uh, reality. But no, I, I think, I think it, it's, it, is, it is healthy to look at those things. Like here's, you know, another important tidbit to always think of is that most of the time, 99.9% of the time, somebody that says something or does something that is completely contradictory to what you're trying to do or what your goal is, is probably not doing it to be intentionally evil. It's probably just a miscommunication yeah. or, you know, we're not aligned for whatever reason. And I, I was horrible in the first part of my career. I didn't know any of this. And I, I would always think that I'm supposed to do the best job I can get that idiot out of my way. He's blocking me. And then, you know, try to try to work around something rather than identify the problem and work with the actual situation and not try to power through it or anything. Um, that takes maturity. Yeah. You know? So, it, I mean, yeah, that takes time. It's it, nobody ever said that. I wish somebody had, had given me some, some insight into that. And I think, um, that's why when I look back on something, I'm like, yeah, see, like I saw where that person went after, you know, after those incidents at project X and they went on to do all these amazing things. So, you know, obviously super talented, obviously, you know, we, we had different goals at a certain point and, always be aware of trying to, you know, try to tap into everybody's wavelength and see what you can do to, you know, to, to match it or, or to change the frequency, right? Like maybe, maybe they don't understand uh, what you're trying to achieve. And there's, there's different approaches that you can take, yeah. to, you know, to illuminate. No, that's, that's great. I oh, man, the whole, I'm, t I'm telling you the wholesome wisdom right now. This is, this is great. Uh, I, so I, like I was a manager uh, for nine years in the restaurant industry. So I have some gaming. You're, you're a game developer. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, but a lot of, a lot of younger employees fresh out of high school, um, would, would say that, would would think that all the time and, and say that all the time that, uh, decisions that would affect them in certain ways were made because, you know, management is evil. Uh, <laughs> and to think like, like at, at that point, I'm, I'm management. And it's not like I woke up in the middle of the night like, oh, how can I ruin somebody's life right. tomorrow? You know, <laughs> like they're human beings, you know. And I get like there are really evil people in the world for sure. Um, but I think generally speaking, you know, most supervisors, most creative directors, if you will, aren't uh, aren't waking up in the morning like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to trash my employees' <laughs> lives today. Hey, it's possible. I said 99.9% .9 of the people right. aren't like that, but you know, I didn't say a hundred. No, it's yeah, they're out there. We agree. <laughs> but, uh, I are going to say most people. Yeah. Like I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I've even come across the other 0.01%. Most everybody's been pretty awesome. See, but I've forgotten all the bad stuff. So that's oh, good. <laughs> that's good. I, I mean, and if people are curious, you can read about like retro studios. Sure. Uh, like I, I did it in advance of this show and there's some things that happen that are interesting, mm -hmm. but, um, but I think from the perspective of this podcast, uh, 
<laughs> that's not really our, our, our shtick. So moving on here to the, our final audience questions. Uh, by the way, folks, if you want to ask a question or share a comment to get a mention on this show, then you just need to keep an eye out on my Twitter at the well read mage, where I announce topics for each mage cast episode in advance, or you can email me, email me at the well read mage at gmail.com. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about secret of evermore on super Nintendo. So if that's a game that you'd like or dislike, I'd still like to hear from you. Uh, leave a comment or a question when that tweet pops up about that podcast. And uh, and we'll be sure to try to include you on the show. But here are our final uh, couple of questions here. Uh, at Mohammed FL10 asks, is it possible to get a crossover between Mega Man X and Metroid Prime what? video game? Um, what? Um, so are you you're not involved <laughs> in like the foreseeable future, you're not involved in Metroid or Mega Man for that matter. No, no, not not that I'm aware of. Uh you never you okay. never know. But I mean anything's possible. It sounds like uh go make it, man. I mean it sounds like a cool mix up, right? The matchup. Um Yeah. But I'd play the heck out of that. That sounds cool. Well, I mean, is it possible to get a crossover? I mean, if I'm gonna answer that seriously, I mean Mega Man's a cartoon. Samus is a real person, so no, no. <laughs> that's kind of difficult. <laughs> we need you need some kind of dimensional rift, you know, that exposes the multiverse. Um, you know, where where Metroids and and Reploids could coexist with each other. Oh, Metroids and Reploids! It writes itself. <laughs> I mean, I know you started thinking about lore. Right there. That's great. Yeah, they sound alike. I wonder what <laughs> Reploid means. Reptile, android. Android. Know. Yeah, I don't know. So the, Replicating Android, the, right? Because it replicates human life. No, yeah, or that's human it. Interaction. We're figuring. We're figuring stories. out all the lore of all these games. There, there should be like a, a video game quantum cafe where these things can happen. These crossovers can happen, and I can order uh, a Metroid Prime rib and a Metal Gear salad, and <laughs> you know, that's brilliant. Like that. See, it's yes. the restaurant parallel again. We could we could have a whole restaurant theme. You know. There are so many parallels with restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's it's not yeah. Oh, it's true. But there is a there is a Mega Man Metroid crossover. It's called Smash Brothers, sure. so you can play that. Sure, sure. Uh, Best Nerd Life said, if you had total freedom, creative and financial, what genre would you spin the Metroid franchise off into? Hmm. Metroid Battle Royale, turn-based RPG, galaxy-spanning No Man's <laughs> Sky clones. Sure. So James, Nintendo's like, hey James, we're gonna give you an unlimited amount of money to make whatever Metroid game you want, what would you do? Wow. Okay. Um, why not just, I mean, it's obvious, right? Like with today's platforms that we have to choose from, how could you make it more immersive even? How could you take more advantage of the fact that you're wearing a visor? Um, what about a VR Metroid game? You know, just get, if you thought the Wii controller was amazing, I mean, you know, now you're actually <laughs> yeah. wearing a visor. So, you know, you could be more immersed in this world than ever. Rendering power is at like, you know, peak performance, especially compared to, you know, GameCube days. Um, yeah. You could have you could have a VR game where you're, you know, various different characters. But obviously Samus is the, the main, you know, the main protagonist here. But you could have like a Netflix show that uses the same assets because we could optimize assets to be real-time rendering and it could coexist, coexist with the game, maybe have uh, narratives 
on a weekly kind of digital show that, that are influenced by uh, events in the game world and crossover um, things from, you know, from both sides could, could be really cool. But I think having a VR Metroid would be, would be super fun. I could, I could get into that. Dang. That does sound super fun. Uh, and you know what? It would be a missed opportunity if the VR headset did not look like Samus ship slash helmet. <laughs> right. At least, at <laughs> least some kind of sticker on the front of it. You know, if you got an Oculus right. or something with a big flat front on it, put a, put a Samus yeah. sticker on it. That, that would be pretty cool. Uh, final question here from our audience, Games with Coffee. If you had the chance to improve upon Metroid Prime, Ooh. what would you do and why? Ooh. Well, question. yeah, Same always. Question. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's going to be the, the boring answer, I guess, which is like, you know, from an art perspective, you're never happy with anything that that's, I'm doing air quotes here, anything that's done, you know, you, you still want to polish and iterate more. Um, so there's, there's always that aspect that linger lingers, like I, I want it to look better. I want it to be more seamless. I want it to, you know, and of course, as hardware improves, we see the more potential that we could have had if, if it existed back then. But I mean, you know, Metroid's a great game. I, I, I like the more immediate stuff. So I, I think if I had to offer like one improvement that was substantive to answer that question, it might be some of the laborious and tedious exploration, make that a little bit more rewarding. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of having to go back and, and replay areas quite so often and, and to lackluster results at times. So I think, you know, making it a little tighter, um, not, not making me feel like I just, you know, had to power through some of it. Um, I don't want to wait. I don't backtrack. Yeah. I don't want to wait around airlock doors to open while I know another level is loading <laughs> behind right. it. Cause that was the whole, you know, that's the whole point. Like, Hey, James, design a door that is cool to open, but also takes X amount of seconds because, you know, uh, we got to load, the, load next the next section. part. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love, I love narrative and Metroid's full of it. So, you know, diving more into that and making more excellent gameplay that, that would, that would help that world building exercise feel more rewarding would be, uh, that would be my, that would be my goal, but that that's easier said than done. Everybody. Yeah. They did a, they did an almost perfect job. Yeah. I mean, well, not everybody's into backtracking. That's a really fair answer. I think like you could always tighten the game, mm -hmm. uh, in that respect. I remember, uh, when I found out that developers use kind of like the black, uh, transition, uh, screen between like an overworld map and a battle screen in an RPG to hide loading. And I was like, oh, I feel cheated. <laughs> so had the, but the doors, yeah, the door is taking a little bit of time. I remember shooting them from a distance so that by the time I got up to the door, it's open. Uh, doesn't always work though. Sometimes they like pulse and stuff. Right, right. But brilliant. Uh, final question here. Uh, is Samus taller than you? Uh, She's six three apparently. Oh, then no, goodness no. Is that with no, or without her boots? No. So this just says personal data. She is six three and she weighs one hundred ninety eight pounds. Gosh. Um. No, I'm 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 only like five ten and a half. So. Oh. Oh, so she is taller than me. I. She's taller than me. I'm six even. <laughs> I, that's a tall Samus. I never, I never, I never saw her eye to eye. I guess that. Nope. Not from the floor. Mm -hmm. Just for, yeah. just virtually. 
Yeah, and then in the suit, she's probably like six five, six six, something like that. How do How do we know That's, this? What is, Ch what is well, so Chewbacca's <laughs> sneaker size? Does anybody know that? Nah, I'm sure George Lucas does. <laughs> uh, I think it's from the Super Metroid manual, it wow. looks like, or it's an art piece from Super Metroid. And then it's got like, you know, copy here for her abilities and things like that. And then, yeah, it's, it says her height and weight. So um, <laughs> I, I always found that funny. Like I, I rarely meet people who are taller than Samus. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know how tall she was. Let's see, I learned something. Yeah, we both did. <laughs> we both did. Uh, well, James, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Um, thanks so much for being on this episode with me. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you, Moses. It's a pleasure. And uh, went by quick. So look forward to it the next did. one. Yeah, there went two hours, just like that. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Oh around i mean i i guess <laughs> i'm on twitter at jh Darji and i mean that's probably the best place to okay to find me because uh, i like to to tweet things on on, on this for the moment there's kind of that live immediacy to twitter um definitely check out clavis base uh com forward slash metroid there's some cool stuff on there to look at that i was totally just drooling over while we were having this fun conversation um shoot i didn't even ask you about this alien pirate language oh. that you did yeah it's in there it's in some of the holograms i think in the, yeah in some of those areas yeah there's yeah, a there's a there's a there's a couple languages there's one language that actually the the guy that co-created the teenage mutant ninja turtles peter peter laird uh he taught me when i was a kid um, and I still, I still use that as like a secret handwriting that is, uh, it's very fluid, but th this one is not that the, the, the alien pirate languages. So from that experience, knowing that, Hey, you can, you can make your own alphabet or you can make your own, um, you know, script that, uh, that, that has a, has a pattern to it. I based the pirate script on it. So you could actually use it. Um, if you knew the secret of how to decipher wow. it. I bet somebody on Reddit. So <laughs> <that> open. <laughs> Go for it. Awesome. Well, James, thanks again, and uh, and take care. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, man. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly learned a lot about a game that I'm quite fond of. Ensure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of MageCast. If you still need more magic, visit thepixels.com. That's the-pixels.com and patreon.com forward slash the pixels or find me on twitter at the well red mage or live streaming at twitch.tv forward slash the well red mage this episode may be over but the legend will live on passed down by the dwarves the elves and the dragons <laughs>